Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, the birth of a baby beaver or kit is certainly no big deal here in Canada, where there are millions of the resourceful rodents. And it's our national animal, of course. But in London, where they welcomed their first kit in centuries recently, it's huge news. So we head to England to find out what exactly is going on. Charlie, Luna, Leo, if you have a dog or cat by that name, well, you're certainly not alone. They rank at the top of the 2023 list of the most popular pet names, according to Rover.com. Luna, if you can believe it, is top for both female cats and female dogs. We get a lowdown on the lists and the trends. New work in neuroscience is revealing some concerning results about the impact of social media on the brains of younger kids, potentially leading to higher levels of depression, aggression, and anxiety. We find out what exactly is going on, what was found, and why. But first, we head to London, Ontario, where the city's Muslim community tonight is reacting after a 22-year-old accused of killing four members of the Afzal family, including a 15-year-old girl and seriously injuring her nine-year-old brother back in the summer of 2021, was today found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder. It was a crime that shocked the community and the country. How big a step is this guilty verdict in healing some of those deep wounds? It was a busy day in courtrooms across the country today with some significant verdicts and decisions. And we begin tonight in Windsor, Ontario, where a jury convicted a man accused of killing four members of a Muslim family in London, Ontario, in the summer of 2021, June of 2021. Uh, Nathaniel Veltman has been found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder uh, today in the courthouse in Windsor. He also was found guilty of one count of attempted murder. The jury began deliberating on Wednesday evening after receiving final instructions from the judge, so it was a relatively quick verdict in this case. The mother of one of the victims spoke to reporters outside the courthouse today after the verdict was read. Tabinda Bukhari said it wasn't just an attack against the Muslim community, but one against all Canadians. This tragedy underscores the critical need for urgent societal reflection and action. This trial and verdict are a reminder that there is still much work to be done to address hatred in all forms that lives in our communities. That juxtaposition between the diabolical intentions of a hell-bent criminal and the love expressed by beautiful teary-eyed strangers has become a catalyst for unity and justice. The crime on June 6th, 2021, uh, shocked many across the country. Uh, it was in the wake of the, that attack that it was it was condemned in Canada and around the world after police labeled it as a hate crime related to anti-Muslim sentiment. Now, the defense had argued that Veltman didn't intend to kill the family, so made a case for him to be convicted of manslaughter that the jury did not believe. The prosecution said the accused was motivated by political, ideological, or religious ideas when he drove his truck into the family. It was a sad and bittersweet day in many ways uh, in that courtroom today. Nawaz Tahir is a lawyer and the head of the Hikma Public Affairs, an advocacy, advocacy group for London and area Muslims. He joins me now. Uh, Nawaz, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Perhaps just your, your initial reaction to hearing the verdict, because I know that uh, while the evidence seemed very strong, there's always that element of doubt that exists when it's in the hands of a jury. You're right. And, you know, I've, I've been doing uh, law for 21 years. I've never felt as nervous and uh, as anxious as I was watching on, on Zoom. 
when the jury came in waiting for the verdict uh, as I have uh, as I was today and uh, once I heard the verdict uh, quite emotional quite raw it took me about uh, five to seven minutes to uh, to settle down so an emotional day for sure. Take me back to why that would be. I mean, I think uh, we, you know, we spoke to the family and on the one-year anniversary of the attack. Um, the emotions are obviously still. I mean, even within the courtroom, it was a rough day. It was a tough day. Even though this was the result that so many had been hoping for, it was a rough day for all those who knew the Avsal family. It was. I mean, it, you know, as a family, just such a great family involved in their community, and I think the time that it took to get to trial, where Things sort of went onto the back burner and then boom, all of a sudden you have the trial and all of these things, all of these wounds are, are, are reopened and fresh uh, and quite a lengthy trial uh, as well. So uh, it, in which we heard a lot of different things, a lot of different emotions during the course of the trial and uh, some things that were tough to hear during the trial as well. So I think all of that factored into uh, all of the emotions of today. Yeah, I mean, it was shocking. It was a horrific crime for people sitting in other communities far, far away, non-Muslims. I can't imagine what it would be like to be part of London's Muslim community in the aftermath of that attack. It was. You know, the the, um, the emotions were, were quite raw. And, and again, this was a, a family that just wasn't Muslim in passing. They were, they were active members of the, the community. Yumna herself had just painted a huge mural uh, inside the mosque. Uh, to to celebrate her her graduation from from the school, and so that I think really played a factor in in, in the raw emotions uh, of of what happened and, and this family being taken away from us, but then also the emotions of of just seeing the support from the community in the aftermath, the, the ten thousand people that uh, walked with the community. So it was a, it was a dark moment, uh, but it was also made to be a, a moment of of real. Uh, neighborly contact and and that uh, love of the community, I think, was very important in the aftermath as well. For listeners to remember, the victims in this case were Yumna Afsal, 15, uh, her parents, uh, Madiha and Salman, uh, 44 and 46, and uh, their mother, their mother, Talat Afsal, her grandmother, Yumna Afsal's grandmother. It was mentioned today uh, that there was that tiny light in in that very dark period, which was the outpouring of sympathy and support from not just London, but from many corners of this country. That's right. And and I think that that's really important as well. It it does show that uh, uh, we have to sort of keep things in perspective, that there is a small group of people in this country that traffic in hate, uh, but we we have to keep focused on the fact that there's a a significantly uh, larger group in this country that that really appreciate the diversity of of the country and of, and of all the people that make up the the mosaic of the country. Now, also, I'll ask you to put your lawyer's hat on here for just a moment to walk us perhaps through what this verdict meant, because I understand that we don't know for sure uh, why the jury came to the conclusion that they came to, because this was also uh, a groundbreaking trial in the sense that there was a terrorism aspect to it. And we don't I understand that we don't know if indeed that came into play here or not. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I'm, I'm not a, a criminal lawyer by nature, but the, the basic concept here was in order to, to get to that finding of guilt of first degree, there were really two two paths, either proving intent or proving the terrorism piece. Uh, but the jury was not required to identify which path it chose to come up with 
the first-degree murder uh, finding of, of guilt. Uh, and so that does leave a little bit of a, a, a question mark. We think that we may hear more on that front from the judge as part of sentencing. Uh, so we, we, we hope that there's more to say on that uh, going forward. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the the mandatory sentence is 25 years, I guess, in, in a case such as this one. Was there doubt within, I mean, you must have been talking about this trial as it went on. Was there doubt that this day would come in some senses, that this would be the verdict uh, within the community? I think at the end of the day, the, the community trusted the, the legal system. And uh, it, it was a long trial, obviously some some ups and downs. Uh, and I think naturally, when you hear the defense case, uh, which took uh, you know in total about three weeks, sometimes it's natural to feel that that doubt creep in, and and uh, you think about concepts of, of recency and what you're recently hearing. Uh, but I thought the prosecution did a really good job in their closing arguments about focusing the jury back on, on what they heard at the beginning of the trial and, and all of those things. So uh, I think at the end of the day. The key takeaway was that the justice system delivered the accountability uh, that the community was looking for as a result of this heinous act. Yeah, I know criminal, criminal law isn't isn't your your practice, but in this case, the jury they came back quickly for a case that was this this long, and in some senses dealt with some fair, relatively complex matters. Even though the crime seems so clear cut, I mean, they, everyone agreed on the facts, right, of, of what had happened. The why was the intent, and the why was what was being. Uh, was being prosecuted here. The jury, though, came back quite quickly for a trial such as this one. I would agree with you. And I, and I think, you know, even though I'm not a criminal lawyer, but just uh, I do do some civil jury work. And, and I think that a lot of us were texting when, when we heard that the jury was coming back, that that was perhaps a, a good sign uh, that it, it had been uh, that quick, uh, that perhaps it was going to be the verdict that we were looking for and hoping for. I, I've spoken to members of the uh, friends of the families in the past, and there's been a real concerted effort, I know, within the community to um, to try to help the boy move move on from what is uh, indescribably horrific. Um, and I imagine that continues tonight uh, as the community rallies around uh, the night. I guess he's he's old. He must be 11 or 12 now. Yeah, certainly. You know, I can't even uh, fathom what a life uh, is going to be like for him with, when you have the, that kind of immediate tragedy where mother, father, sister, grandmother taken away at one time. And I think uh, the great extended family around him, and I think the, the it's a balancing act of, of community support uh, for him and for the family that's taking care of him right now. Uh, but also giving the family their their room as well. Uh, they certainly didn't want this this spotlight uh, thrust upon them, um, and certainly respect their uh, right to to grieve and heal uh, in private. So it it is that balancing act of wanting to be there for them and wanting to do whatever we can for them, but at the same time respecting their their desire for privacy. Yeah, listening to Tabenda Bukhari today, uh, Tabinda Bukhari rather, speaking about how this was reminding people more than two years later that this was a crime, not just against one Muslim family, but against all Canadians. And it felt like that was something that was important to remind people on this day. It was. And I think given the, the high profile 
nature of of the trial and the coverage that it received really gained some insight that perhaps we haven't before uh, on this issue of of radicalization and how one young man uh, became radicalized to the point of of wanting to take matters into his own hands like this. And I think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn as a society about about that process. How might we intervene? You're talking about a a 20-year-old young man who uh, was not far removed from, from our education system. So how can our education system uh, change or, or be tweaked to to ensure that we are, are talking about uh, diversity and, and respect for our differences? For the Muslim community today, and I know you obviously have close contact in, in London, is there a sense, uh, is there a, a more of a sense of security now, two and a half years later with even with this verdict than there was, um, it, it, has that returned, I guess, would be the right question. I, I don't think it has. And, and I think the reason for that is because we've seen, unfortunately, several of, uh, events in Canada over the last several years. And so with each successive event, it lowers that overall sense of, of security for the community. And we see how, uh, these young men are being radicalized, and you and you you wonder is is the next radicalized young man out there right now? And we are still seeing, unfortunately, uh, microaggressions uh, that are taking place on a regular basis. We're still seeing incidents of Islamophobia across the country. So I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to to address the security of Canadian Muslims. Right. And certainly, given what's happened over the last uh, you know month and a bit, uh, th- that's something that I know people were talking about today as well, commentators. People be, be asked for their reaction, such as yourself, uh, being asked to react to the verdict today. People were wanted to point out that this problem is far from having been uh, solved or even reduced uh, in this country. It is. And, and I think, you know, what, what we have to think about, too, is... is learning about this issue of, of radicalization, but that the role of, of misinformation in society, the, uh, the role that elected leaders have uh, when they speak on an issue uh, like this, uh, the role of the media in reporting issues uh, around the world. Because as we, we have now seen, it, it's very easy for someone to go down a rabbit hole and, and get into a, a thought tunnel uh, that leads them down a very dark path. Yeah, that struck me as being just following the trial from afar. That struck me as being maybe the scariest part of it was how quickly it all it all devolved from something into into what happened. It it, it is very shocking, and and I, I think as a society, this trial has given us uh, a bit of a wide angled lens on on how we we view that that piece of of of, of a young man uh, getting into that sort of rabbit hole and becoming so radicalized and, and what his information sources were and, and how he interacted with those information sources that led him to uh, not just think about things, but, but obviously plan something, plan a manifesto and then, and then act out on it. Yeah. I suspect there'll be a lot of, it's going to take a while for the community to process even what's happened today as everyone gathers tomorrow, for instance. I think it will. I, I think there's still a lot of very raw emotion uh, in the community. This was uh, a, a deep wound, and, and a deep wound is going to take some time to heal. I think today's decision was 
a part of that healing process, an important part of that healing process, uh, but it's definitely not an, an end point. Uh, it's still one point on, on, a, on a journey that's going to take some time. Well, Anoaz Tahir, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. My pleasure. Have a great night. Uh, the federal government's uh, proposed ban on six single-use plastic items that include straws, grocery bags, takeout containers, and so on. It has pretty big public support right across the country. And, of course, municipalities have been well on their way to doing stuff like this for quite a while. But this federal ban, because it's not really their domain, kind of rested on one specific matter, which was, can all these items be classified as toxic under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act? That would allow the federal government to impose this ban that they were looking at putting in place as of December 20th, as far as I remember. Well, today the federal court said uh, no. Uh, They've said that the implication for the government's ban um, is... Well, basically, they said it was too broad, more or less. That was the I won't. That, that's not legalese, needless to say. But they say it's not reasonable, or the federal court judge said it was not reasonable to say that all plastic manufactured items are harmful uh, because the category is too broad. The federal court judge ruled that it was unreasonable and unconstitutional. Now, uh, the environment minister Stephen Gilbo said uh, he's going to look into this. They're thinking, obviously, of appealing. The case was brought forward by a group of major industrial players in plastics, which is no surprise, Dow Chemical, Imperial Oil, and Nova Chemicals. They argue that Ottawa failed to demonstrate it had enough scientific evidence to justify these regulations. So what impact will this have? Marie-Pierre Boudreau is an environmental lawyer at Faskins in Montreal, and she joins me now. Marie-Pierre, thank you so much. Hello, Ben. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here with you. You wrote about this a while back, and this didn't come as a huge surprise to you, did it? This uh, this ruling from the federal court that these uh, that this toxicity uh, aspect of this was just too broad. Yeah, well, we've been assessing that uh, that designation from the federal government for quite a while now. Uh, we've been following the case uh, before the the federal court uh, um, and the hearing that occurred. Um, earlier this year um of course the the, the breadth of the designation it, it was was questioned by a lot of players in the industry including uh some organization inside quebec um it is still a surprise about how far the the court followed the applicants on this um the court basically accepted all of the the arguments from the, the applicants in this case so uh, on this part this this does come as a surprise to me, but the, the overall breadthness of the of the designation was was for sure questionable at first. Yeah, right. I guess the federal court judge's worse uh, use of the wording uh, "unreasonable" and "unconstitutional" pretty much was exactly what the applicants in this case, uh, companies involved in the in the plastics industry, that's exactly the words they were looking for, right? Exactly, and and the the, the federal court ruling today. Um, it's important to to understand that it it will not have direct impact on the current version of the the CEPA. This is because uh, the the CEPA was amended in last June of of this year. So the ruling of the the federal court has limited impact on the the current and amended version of the the CEPA. However, uh, the the judge noted that uh, its ruling will have an impact on the petroplastic case. Uh, that is the case that is reviewing the, the constitutionality of the regulation on single-use plastic. That is the, okay. the sixth single-use plastic ban. Um, and so on, on that end, the, the, the federal court will have uh, an impact for the, the petroplastic case, but it does not have 
the effect of quashing uh, the actual version of, of Schedule 1 of the SIPA. Right, because this is sort of a complex, it sounds very straightforward when the federal government introduced it, and it sounds, you know, these six items, but it is actually, because it's not really their jurisdiction, uh, this is actually quite complicated, isn't it? Because the, the whole notion of toxicity was brought in to allow them to go ahead with this ban. I gather that's supposed to come up on, the, on December the 20th. Will it have an impact on that timing? So uh, the, the question is uh, right now that the regulation for the, 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 the six-item bans coming in force uh, this December um, was, in fact, enacted following the designation of the, the plastic manufactured items in Schedule 1. Okay. Um, so I do expect that it will have uh, the practical effect to quash this regulation Nevertheless, uh, it is to be expected that uh, the federal court that is also uh, reviewing the, the petroplastic case will consider this ruling and conclude that um, the designation was inconstitutional and unreasonable, and therefore the regulation also is. Um, right. And so, yes, it is expected to have direct effect on coming this December, yeah. Given what was uh, how unequivocal the decision was, uh, what do you make of, of Stephen Gilbo's, the environment minister's sort of announcement that they're looking at this very closely and are seriously considering an appeal? Yeah, um, I, I'm thinking that uh, the, the the reasons of the court are are pretty um, are pretty much detailed. I would say on the unreasonable front, um, I think it will be kind of. Um, difficult to appeal of this uh, decision uh the the more maybe the the weaker part of the the decision on for my view is the uh, the analysis on the constitutionality of the designation that is simply because the, i feel that the judge didn't go in depth to what is the pit and substance of the the order and how it didn't include how it didn't fall into the the criminal law power. Um, I'm thinking it, uh, the, the federal government may have something there on the unconstitutionality front. However, for the reasonableness of the designation, it will be harder. Um, the, the applicants were, um, were actually basing their arguments on um, documents published and prepared by the Ministry of the Environment. Uh, to justify that a further assessment of the toxicity of the plastic manufactured uh, items was to be uh, carried out by uh, by the the federal government and that it didn't do so um, so I'm thinking for the for the justification of qualifying those uh, plastic manufactured items as toxic um, the, the the federal government will have a, a hard time uh, trying to appeal that part of the of the ruling. Yeah, I mean, it was very broad. In the meantime, of course, I mean, I live in a community where they banned almost all of this stuff already. So there are municipal laws in place. There are obviously uh, different jurisdictions around the country that already have these rules in place. That doesn't change. Exactly. So, And that that's the question. Who's um, more fitted to intervene in that matter? Because uh, what, what the government, what the federal government may do in that regard is to limit the importation, the, the manufacturing um, of, of those products and, and their um, importation into the Canadian market. However, for banning the use of such products, it's rather the, the provincial legislatures and municipal uh, governments that are intervening on that front. So 
all of the bans that we're seeing from municipalities all over Canada are uh, remain and remain valid because that's the that's one point of the of today's ruling is that uh, residual materials are more so the the, the competence fall within powers of uh, provincial and municipalities and not uh, uh, within the powers of the federal government. So. Um, yeah. What we can gather from today's ruling is that maybe, and, and, and it's another setback for uh, for environmental initiatives from the federal, the federal government following uh, uh, this month's uh, SCC's decision on the on the federal impact assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's another setback on that front. But um, for sure, what we're seeing is that the federal courts are saying. Maybe the, the the federal government has done its part, and now it's it's time for provincial legislatures and municipalities to to go ahead to do theirs as well. Well, Marie Pierre, thank you so much for your time on this. Uh, thank thank you, Ben. Have a good night. There was a big decision today in a court-martial here in B.C., a former soldier and reservist, James Topp, who defied the Armed Forces' COVID-19 vaccine mandate, has been fined 4000 bucks and received a severe reprimand at the conclusion of his court-martial. Of course, he was a former warrant officer. He pleaded guilty to two charges of conduct to the prejudice of good order and discipline in relation to two videos that he posted to social media wearing um, his military uniform, criticizing the military's vaccine policy. Now, there were a lot of mitigating circumstances here. Um, the judge in this case, the military judge, Commander Julie Duchesne, or Duchesne uh, told the court that the court martial that the sentence was fair and fit, noting that he took responsibility for his actions, his taking steps to get his life in order. She also said she believed that Top was in a state of despair back in February of 2022 when he made those videos and embarked on public protests. You'll remember, of course, he made that long march across the country um, to protest against vaccine mandates, but he did that out of uniform. So that was not what this was involved in. Of course, he had served in Croatia, Afghanistan, other war zones. Rory Fowler is a military law practitioner and retired Canadian Forces Lieutenant Colonel himself. He joins me now. Rory, Rory, thank you. You're welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. This has been a much talked about uh, process. What what options did the military judge in this case have in front of her in terms of what he could be handed? So Commander DeShane, who was a military judge, uh, received s- submissions from both the prosecution and defense counsel. The prosecution was asking for a severe reprimand and a $5,200 fine. Uh, and, of course, his defense counsel was asking for an absolute discharge. And one of the reasons the defense counsel was asking for an absolute discharge, because an absolute discharge is essentially a finding of guilt without a sentence and therefore no conviction. There was no way the military judge was going to impose uh, an absolute discharge in this particular circumstance. There was going to be a sentence. So what is a severe reprimand then? I mean, the money, the money, the 5,200 is now 4,000. Uh, but the, what is a severe reprimand and what kind of impact does that have on James Todd? Little to none. The best way I can characterize it is a reprimand is the Canadian Forces way of saying that they are upset with you. And a severe reprimand is the Canadian Forces way of saying they are very upset with you. If James Top were still serving, a severe reprimand would essentially deduct two years of good conduct from his service for the calculation of things like the award of the Canadian Forces Decoration or a bar to the Canadian Forces Decoration. That's utterly irrelevant for him because he's no longer serving. And on top of that, I suspect the prosecution would say, well, there's still an importance with respect to setting a precedent for other people. And and that's true. The problem with that rationale, though, is that 
James Top was released from the Canadian forces. And so his compulsory release from the Canadian forces was a factor that she considered. And therefore, if a future accused were still a member of the Canadian forces, the circumstances of the accused would be different. And therefore, the factors considered for sentencing would be different. So really what we're dealing with is a fine of $4,000 and an indication that the Canadian forces was very upset with him. This sentence will not create a criminal record. This is a hard slap on the wrist, in other words. And this is a hard slap on the wrist, but doesn't necessarily give him any, there won't be any follow-up for James Top himself. He's already left the military. Presumably he won't attempt to rejoin. I mean, what message does it send to other other CAF members when it comes to this sort of, because clearly the judge was was unequivocal about the fact that he used his uniform to essentially defy orders. What should we walk away with then? Is this is this now a message to serving members that they can do this again if they disagree with? I mean, forget what he was disagreeing with, but disagreeing with anything in particular. In this case, you know, vaccine mandates, as much as people may rail against them now at the time, you know, eight, more than 80 percent of Canadians got vaccinated. So in this sense, he, he was defying not he was making a political statement and defying his command. Absolutely. And, and so I think the message that's being sent is if you're going to go on social media, and make highly controversial statements, and and do so in uniform. The clear message that's being sent is that's not going to be tolerated. I, I wouldn't say it it, it communicates or uh, demonstrates that anyone's willing to accept his justification. There are certainly mitigating factors. A huge mitigating factor is the fact that he was released from the Canadian forces. Another mitigating right. factor was the fact that he pled guilty. But he was found guilty. He did have a fine imposed on him. I would suggest to you that if he had not been released from the Canadian forces, he probably would have been looking at a more serious, serious sentence. I would suggest to you that if he had made a more controversial statement or if he had repeated it, he would have been looking at a more serious sentence and possibly even a sentence that would have carried a criminal record with it. And in this particular case, it was an offense against discipline and therefore warrants a disciplinary sentence, which is exactly what James Top got. Right. I suppose there was so much around James Top after he went on the march and Pierre Polyev joined him and so on. But none of that mattered in this case. Right. This was purely about the times that he the time that he was in uniform and went on social media to criticize the chain of command. That's right. The The march that he did afterward. And, you know, it's it, 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 he, he did a march to raise awareness for something that he thought was important. That wasn't part of the material facts of the alleged offenses or now the proven offenses. The fact that a particular politician embraced him, both figuratively and literally, largely wasn't all that material to this offense. As you say, this is about two specific acts that contravened the Code of Service Discipline, and that's what he was found guilty for, and that's the basis upon which the military judge imposed the sentence. The prosecutor, though, was was quite clear about saying that this could have had a you know a spread. It, it it impacted the morale and so on. I mean, that was taken into consideration. It felt like this was a pretty balanced decision that the judge both took into consideration the harm that was done, at least according to the prosecution, but also took into consideration the extenuating circumstances and the breadth of exactly what James Top did in uniform. Yes, because. When a judge, whether it's a military judge or a civilian judge, is sentencing somebody for a disciplinary or criminal offense, there's a variety of factors that have to be taken into consideration, aggravating and mitigating. You have to consider the nature of the the offenses themselves, the context in which the offenses were committed, and the nature of the, the offender. 
And so if you've got somebody who has dedicated over 20 years of his life to service of the country, that's going to be a relevant factor. But in the same vein, if he's thumbing his nose at the discipline of the very institution to which he has belonged for over 20 years, where he holds the rank of warrant officer, which is not an insignificant rank for a non-commissioned member, that's going to be a relevant factor as well. And it's going to be an aggravating factor because we very much in the Canadian forces lead by example. And he was setting a bad example. It is not open to members of the Canadian forces to air their grievances publicly. If somebody in the Canadian forces has a dispute, disagrees with a policy, there are venues for addressing those. Are they, are they perfect venues? Not in the least. But there are mechanisms available to members of the Canadian forces to raise concerns like this. Going on social media, wearing your uniform, and criticizing the senior decision-making or the decision-making of senior leaders is not one of those mechanisms. This was always going to be a, a matter where the sentence was going to include either a reprimand or a severe reprimand and some form of fine, but it was unlikely, particularly in the light of the fact that he pled guilty, it was unlikely it was going to rise to a level that would create a criminal record for James Todd. Well, Rory Fowler, as always, thank you for your insight on this. You're welcome. Let's head to speaking of, of Afghanistan, because uh, James Topp, one of the many places he had a long and distinguished military career, uh, which I'm sure was taken into consideration today. Um, he served in Afghanistan as well. I don't know if you've seen these pictures of Afghans who sought refuge in Pakistan just across the border uh, for years, uh, especially of late. But over many, many years, they've sort of escaped the, the, the tribulations of whatever's going on, whether it be war or under the Taliban in Afghanistan to find refuge in Pakistan. Well, now uh, Pakistan has started to crack down and try to get people out. And uh, it's going to affect some 2 million Afghan Afghans who are there without documentation. Uh, many have already started to head back into Afghanistan, into a very precarious situation. Um, certainly, this has led to a lot of criticism from UN agencies as well. Uh, it also comes at a time when a former Canadian ambassador to Afghanistan uh, has made some interesting comments saying it's time for Ottawa to reestablish a diplomatic presence in Afghanistan under the Taliban. Arif Lalani says Canada lacks a first-hand view of living conditions in the country, where Canadian troops, of course, fought for more than 12 years. He tells the Senate that Canada sh should focus on how it can influence the Taliban and help people living in Afghanistan, arguing that Canada's current stance isn't helping them. The Taliban seems to have taken hostage an entire society, and our response has been to neither use force nor to use diplomacy. And so I think we're at a standstill and Afghans are suffering. We actually need to take a decision. That's Arif Lalani, the former Canadian ambassador to Afghanistan. Uh, Morwarid Ziai is senior director of the Canadian Women to Women in Afghanistan, for Women in Af Afghanistan, rather. And she joins me now. Uh, Morwarid, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Just, I mean, the images from Pakistan uh, of people having to flee what is already already a precarious existence, but at least it was somewhat safer, uh, has been heartbreaking, really. I mean, this decision really impacts women and children as well, I suspect. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, what we have seen through media and also through uh, people we know living in, in Pakistan uh, and facing such a crisis situation is uh, disheartening and uh, deeply concerning. Um, and it's uh, we are talking about millions of uh, Afghans uh, living in Pakistan, either uh, already faced this deportation and harassment and detention, 
uh, or in the fear of being uh, sub- subject to uh, being such in such a situation in near future. Um, it's, it's it's really uh, concerning and disturbing. For those who may not, uh, I mean, first of all, Af- Afghans over many, many years, whether it was under the original Taliban regime or during during you know any different permutation of war that's happened, uh, many have crossed over that border into, from southern Afghanistan into Pakistan over the years. Why the change of attitude from Pakistan towards this group that has been amongst them for for decades? Yeah. Uh... Well, hard to say, but we have seen Pakistan uh, for all these years uh, playing games, double games um, here uh, with international community. They always uh, played a card to um, take, um, give refugee to Afghans, um, of course, um, documented or undocumented. And here from international community, the leverage of uh, getting uh, funds and financial assistance, and they have always pressurized Afghan population and, and refugees there to get more funding from um, international community, and they have been successful in, in doing that for all these years. Um, Afghans who are there uh, are not receiving any support and nothing from Pakistan government, so they they are not a burden on Afghan, on, on Pakistan government, but. Um, this this uh, behavior of um, uh, the Pakistani government is uh, to um, get more to have more leverage on the international community to, for more funding. Right. So not a burden, but a pawn in this case. I suspect yeah. that many of those who are sitting who are now under uh, threat of having to leave Pakistan are those who are waiting to come to Canada. Right. I mean, there are we know of many stories of people who've been stuck in Pakistan or other third countries waiting to get here. I can assume that there are more than a few right now who face uh, imminent deportation or just will choose to go back to Afghanistan. Uh, that's so true. Um, there are people who who are who have cases with Canadian um, um, government as well as some other governments, and they um, either their cases should be processed very soon to be to leave, otherwise they are uh, at the risk of deportation, forced deportation, or um, leaving the country uh, in the fear of uh, being detained and harassed. By themselves, their families, women, children, and, and Pakistan government has showed no mercy to anyone um, um, who, who didn't have legal documentation. And also even people who had documentation, who have been living in Pakistan for uh, now two, three generations, they were deported. Even they had this uh, um, ID card issued by Pakistan. Um, so uh, 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 those who recently moved to Pakistan uh, and they have uh, cases, for example, with Canadian government, it's a huge risk for them because um, either they have to pay a lot of money if they are lucky uh, to have that money and, and can, can pay that bribe to stay for, for a while or the um, forcibly uh, deported back to Afghanistan. Right. And what awaits them there? Because no doubt uh, many of them left Afghanistan after the fall of, of Kabul and the return of the Taliban. I mean, many have been there for, as you point out, much longer than that. Uh, but there are certainly those who had to leave for fearing for their safety, who've now tried to find refuge in Pakistan as a way station as they wait to get somewhere safer. And now they face the very real possibility of being set right back into the lion's den, so to speak. Exactly. Who left Afghanistan uh, 
for all these years, especially after August 15, 2021, that wasn't a choice. Like they had no other choice but to uh, flee the country for safety. Uh, that was the most, uh, the one main reason to leave the country, selling everything they had, leaving everything behind and leave for a safe place relatively safe. I wouldn't say it completely, but relatively safe place. Some people, like thousands of uh, families left Afghanistan because their daughters didn't have any opportunity to study um, either in school or university. And that was the only option they could see to uh, go to Pakistan and uh, somehow get an education, even either through private uh, schools or or, um, other means. And and now with uh, forced deportation of uh, these families, they lost uh, not only everything they had in Afghanistan, they will be back to a country where gender apartheid is going on, uh, where uh, human uh, rights violation is going on, humanitarian crisis is going on. uh, Most of them um, we talked to uh, lost their hopes for not only their future, but for their lives. And uh, it's at huge risk. Has Canada, I mean, clearly Canada has explained again and again and again why the process has been so incredibly slow, but it feels like this move by Pakistan has has laid bare the stakes here and that maybe Canada needed to do more faster. I mean, I, I know how complicated it is, but now they're in a situation where they're, the people they need to get out of Pakistan are, are almost going about to be sent back to Afghanistan. And that seems to be the worst possible case for all the many people that Canada promised refuge to over the years, specifically those who worked with Canada during that long time in Afghanistan. Yes. And you know what? These people who have um, resettlement cases pending with Canadian government, if they are um, deported back to Afghanistan, this means that these families have lost the only uh, chance they had to get out of Afghanistan and get out to get reach to Canada to a safe place. Um, uh, this this will be the the last chance, and they will not be able to return back to Pakistan to re, to process their um, um, resettlement cases and applications. So this is the time exactly. This is the time to speed up the process of resettlement of uh, pending applications and open other pathways for those who are at the risk of deportation from. Afghanistan. Afghanistan, from Pakistan back to Afghanistan, at least those who are at immediate risk, um, um, opening pathways for them to to leave that um, country and avoid returning them to to Afghanistan back, because it's it's a crisis. It will be a crisis for them. They have lost everything, and and um, there will be more violence. And uh, I don't know who will be responsible for that. Right. Uh, I played a clip a little earlier from Arif Lalani, the former Canadian ambassador to Afghanistan. I've heard this argued before, that Canada needs to establish some sort of diplomatic presence in Kabul, some sort of relationship with the Taliban, because whatever's been happening over the past two years hasn't worked in terms of rights for women, some of the things that were fought for over many, many years. Uh, Is that something that sounds like a good idea to you? Absolutely not. Um, Mm. There's uh, any... Building any relationship with Taliban uh, is leading to recognizing Taliban. This is what they want. And a government, I wouldn't say a government, a group of um, armed force that uh, governing a country or ruling a country 
uh, where gender apartheid is going on, where, where human rights crisis is going on, um, how the world could enter to um, in an engagement with them. There is a third way. If there is no possible way for force and uh, the people of Afghanistan don't want any engagement of international community with Taliban, there is a third way, and that's sanction Taliban. Pressure Taliban internationally. Like, this is the international community. Um, you all get together. You all pressure Taliban instead of engaging with Taliban. That's what right. people of Afghanistan wants. I suppose part of the problem here is that the Taliban have found um, certain countries that they seem to be able to maintain diplomatic relationships with, and that has meant that the pressure coming from countries such as Canada hasn't had much of an impact. Um, I think um, sanctioning Taliban, uh, not allowing Taliban to use international platforms, um, uh, their uh, tra- ban on their travel, uh, ban on uh, their money, um, financial assistance to Taliban, that will pressure not only Taliban, but also their supporters. Right. Because the situation clearly, um, more than two years now, has just been, it continues to get worse and worse. And here we are heading into yet another winter, of course. And, and again, it's going to be an incredibly challenging one. And now you have more people coming back into the country, presumably from Pakistan, just straining the whole system that's already crumbling even more. Yeah, so that that's how, because some of the countries who uh, showed interest in ga- engaging with Taliban, that made the situation worse. If, if the international community were all united and say and had a, one uh, position, one strong position, either um, all these uh, uh, um, conditions are met um, or there is no leverage, there is no engagement, then the case would have been different. But... Um, I'm telling you, no other, no uh, engagement with Taliban will change the situation of people in Afghanistan because we have seen some countries showed uh, that uh, uh, softness and um, uh, diplomatic uh, affairs. They started diplomatic affairs. What changed in Afghanistan? Uh, as the human rights situation changed, as um, gender apartheid started, stopped. No, day by day, um, there are more restrictions. Day by day, there are more atrocities. Uh, and it didn't change anything uh, in right. any improvement in the situation of uh, human rights and humanitarian uh, uh, issues in Afghanistan. So engagement yeah. with Taliban will uh, only make them more powerful them and more, more right. stable. Mourid, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. There's some interesting new research out today from Western University uh, that looks at the neuroscience of not only screen time on kids, but social media in particular, trying to figure out exactly what's happening in the brain, the still developing brain, by the way, when um, kids are exposed to a lot of screen time and a lot of social media. Now, this was something that happened, obviously, at the height of the pandemic. Uh, screen time for a lot of kids just skyrocketed, right? Part of it was schooling. Part of it was not being able to go out. Part of it was just boredom. But kids were glued to their phones and glued to social media. Um, Now, this study used information gathered from 200 Canadian families. Uh, It's built on another study that was uh, on, on before that. And they kind of used, went through COVID through that 
height of COVID and use some of that data as well, just to figure out what was going on um, and the effects of social media and the addiction to it in teens. They found things like anxiety and depression, aggression, all of them were up. And not in everyone, by the way, of course, these aren't universally true, but there were some there were some trends that are that are definitely worth looking at, um, and just the mental health issues that it can pose. Uh, Emma Dordan joins me now. She's the Canada Research Chair in Neuroscience and Learning Disorders at Western. They conducted this research, and she, uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. This seems uh, anecdotally true, but you set out to find out what exactly is happening to kids' brains when they're using social media. Uh, what prompted the idea? What were you What were you looking for? Well, what really prompted the idea was that we conducted a series of studies during the pandemic and to really to get, uh, you know, to find out how children and families were doing during the initial phases of the pandemic. And we conducted some longitudinal studies and we were really shocked to find out that children's screen time had significantly increased. Uh, we, test, we examined screen time before the pandemic and during the pandemic. And uh, for some of our earlier studies, we found that screen time had nearly tripled in children uh, at over almost six hours a day. So children over the age of five are recommended to get about two hours a day. And in our studies now that we've been you know, following families, we followed about 200 Canadian families for nearly three years, tracking screen time. And we, we showed that screen time really didn't increase over the first year not really the second year, but after about two and a half years of the pandemic, we start to see a small decrease. Right. And now, yeah, and, and now we have the opportunity, now the pandemic's over, we have the opportunity to look at these long-term effects on the brain. Right. And and I, I suppose, I mean, that in of itself was a strange time, clearly, and, and kids were kind of resorting to going to school on screen. And there was a lot of reasons for them to be on screen so much. But I suppose it did offer an opportunity to really try to figure out what sort of impact screen time has on the young brain. And that's what you that's what you looked into. And it's all around the reward system and decision making. It's It's mm -hmm. fascinating stuff. Yeah, so we know that social media activates brain regions that we are that we have that are involved in emotional processing, but also involved in social connectedness, uh, having friendships, quality of those uh, relationships, and we also know that these brain regions undergo really exponential changes in adolescence, so that they could be even more vulnerable to the effects of things like social media and screen time use. What were you finding then? Um, because of course, you know, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. People used to talk a lot about, you know, TV. My mom used to call it the idiot box. Obviously there was, you know, TV watching was a big one, big concern for kids. And then came along video games. But the screen, the social media thing, it, it seems to be a somewhat different phenomenon. I don't know how related they are, but what's happening to the brain and what are what what did you find when you looked into it? Well, our group and others has shown that something like social media excessive screen time is associated with changes in the brain, particularly the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is really essential for decision making as well as response inhibition. So for young adolescents who are scrolling, 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 they're not really equipped to be able to manage their screen time use. So it's very concerning from that perspective. Yeah, they, they and and you found that there were 
and you've mentioned a few of them already, but you found that there were in fact impacts that you that you saw when monitoring this group uh, on those who were using who were on social media the most. Yeah, we have a number of studies on social media. Our group and others have looked at longitudinal associations as well in the brain, um, tracking children for years, doing brain imaging studies. And they've also shown that the excessive uh, social media use, particularly um, constant checking, the habitual checking, which about almost 50% of teens report where they're constantly checking social media, that that's actually associated with increased activation in brain regions involved in reward, but also punishment. So the prefrontal cortex, as well as the brain's fear center, the amygdala. And that's very concerning that these brain regions are undergoing the, well, they're undergoing these these changes in development, that they're really being heavily influenced by social media. And and what, I mean, in lay, layperson's terms, uh, this it sounds like addiction, right? I mean, that when you would describe it like that, sort of reward and pain, it sounds like addiction. Yeah, well, these platforms are essentially designed to be addictive, right? With the, the likes and the constant feedback, then they're, they're really designed for people to use them, right? And to in order to use them, they have to be designed in a certain way. And in turn, teenagers, they can be more vulnerable to this, where they can become more addicted to these types of stimuli because they don't really have those uh, cognitive control centers that are really mediated by the prefrontal cortex. They don't really have those fully developed, that's happening more later in, in their 20s. So they may not be able, so they may be more susceptible to responding to these rewards because of the, the brain circuitry. And it could place them more at risk for right. addictive behaviors for, for social media. And this is something that, I mean, we think of kids as sort of being younger teens, but you've noticed this even in in students, university age students, that they have, there are issues around focus. I think we all, anyone who uses their phone too much, and I'm certainly guilty of that, notices that, that you have to kind of tear yourself away from it to focus properly on something like reading a book or paying attention to it in a classroom, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. So we see this at the university level, and certainly this was really exacerbated in the pandemic. That with all the social distancing, the way people connected was through social media. So it became very habit forming. And we do see this more so in university students now, you know, compared to those who were um, before the pandemic, that they, you know, they're reporting that they're having, you know, difficulties with concentrating, attention. And, and, and a lot of them say, yeah, it's because they're just, you know, scrolling on their phone, always getting, you know, constant information, information changing, but without really having to, you know, apply themselves, nothing that's really, you know, complex. So, and in, so, and reading is, has really gone down considerably. And so in turn, adolescents are not being challenged like they used to. Right. Uh, and because of um, of these scrolling types of behaviors. 
from a neuroscience and learning point of view, because one could imagine people people can read on their phones now if they want, right? I mean, you, you, you refer specifically to social media, but I suppose there are some educational aspects to social media if you're scrolling through news or you're scrolling through, I mean, there are things you can learn on social media. Uh, but from a neuroscience and learning point of view, what's the concern? Is the concern just that young brains are being shaped in a way that we don't really understand because these technologies are new? Yes, absolutely. So all screen time isn't created equal. So, for example, educational programming for children like Sesame Street, you know, was associated with learning letters and numbers and certainly getting news from from your smartphone compared to a newspaper is obviously going to be quite comparable in terms of the I mean, it, it, it potentially it could impact the the amount of, of information that you're absorbing because of the like the quick um, access to it. So in turn, it may be that, uh, so, so we do know though, uh, just about social media, that how rapidly it, it is changing, that this can really have long-term effects on children's brain development and, and even their mental health outcomes. Right. Because you talked about aggression, depression, and anxiety as part of some of the symptoms. I'm sure it's not universal, but uh, those are some of the, some of the potential outcomes. Yeah, so social media use. So so just to say that not everyone is impacted the same by right. social media. So in Canada, there's about 30 million so, uh, social media accounts. So that's a lot of Canadians who are using social media. About 85% of teens in Canada use social media. So in turn, it, it's not as if they are all being affected in the same way. There can be those individuals who are more susceptible than others to the negative effects of social media. But certainly uh, our group and others have shown that it's associated with depression, anxiety, even uh, aggression towards others. Some larger scale studies are showing that social media in particular could be related to uh, hostility, and impacting social interactions with others, which is very concerning. I mean, this this raises that 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 question that the way you describe it. I mean, it sounds a bit like um, a public health issue, right? I mean, that we can't, we're not. They're so common screens that everyone has one, right? So it, they become so normalized so quickly that sometimes I think we forget to think about what the risks could be of a technology that is, in every which way, still very new. Yeah, it is a, a definitely a public health issue. Certainly before the pandemic, we found that children were roughly meeting guidelines. and But now we see that this is really chronic overuse of screens, really sounding the alarm bells. The majority of parents, teachers, administrators at schools really have... Um, they, they have little ideas about the, the that there are guidelines available and that uh, in terms of how much screen time children should be exposed to, screens can often even be used in, in classrooms, even with very, very young children under the age of five who should really be receiving only about one hour of screen time a day. So in turn, this is really a public health issue in that there's, and there needs to be more awareness. So for iPads or um, uh, for uh, cell phones or iPad covers that are being marketed to children should really come with an information pamphlet so that people are becoming more informed about screen time, that it can have long-term impacts on brain development and outcome in children.
Is that the difference then with, with with the screen as we now refer to it as compared to, say, watching TV 30 years ago? Is that because there's an interactive portion to it, it becomes there's, there's a different level of of sort of anxiety, addiction and so on when you just sit because they have there is control, right? There is some you have to tear yourself away from it, for instance. Um, and, and that mightn't be when watching TV, your mind wanders when scrolling through social media. Often your mind doesn't. Yeah, that's right. So for passive screen time watching in children, it's uh, it's actually been a, a shown to not as have as detrimental effects as something like playing video games or social media. Mm-hmm. So certainly there is something about social media, particularly the content in terms of what adolescents and, and uh, young adults are viewing. And that has really been shown to be more powerful predictor of adverse outcomes in comparison to looking at the the algorithm and the algorithm kind of picking up what people are looking at. It's really more the content itself on social media that has been shown to be associated with um, with a number of adverse mental health outcomes. Right. The way that it's so targeted to the individual user, right, which, of course, TV never was. I mean, it was targeted to a to Mm -hmm. a broad to a broad user. But the way social media is so uh, the algorithms are so targeted to your own use. What would be I mean, is is it just a question now if you're a parent, for instance, you're concerned about this? I mean, obviously, kids of, of all ages, you see two-year-olds on the on you know on public transit with or you see two-year-olds in public manipulating screens better than my parents do right it's pretty amazing these days clearly the kids kids want to use them i suppose the question is just trying to 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 manage that use in a way that's healthier be aware of it yeah absolutely i think it really starts with an open dialogue so clearly we're talking about really different generations so what you were saying about watching tv in the 70s and 80s most uh, teenagers are never watching television, like actual television now, um, you know, with commercials. They're watching shows, they're watching videos on TikTok. And right now for, um, for teens, when they're meeting one another, kind of one of the first things that they'll say is, oh, well, you know, what's your social media handle? Mm-hmm. That's how they're meeting and interacting. But for, um, for their parents' generation, it would kind of be unthinkable. It would seem as really invasive to be asking for someone's social media uh, right away. So we're, we're talking about two different worlds here. So I think it really, to, to have that open dialogue, for them to, like, to get informed, both parents and teenagers. I don't think any teenager would really want to be looking back on their life and knowing uh, how much, how detrimental screen use and social media use could be on their brain and how it could impact their future. Right. Yeah. Use it wisely. Emma, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You got a guess that dog's name. You got to play the game. You got to try and try and try and try to name that dog. Name that dog. You must have seen that skit on Saturday Night Live ages ago. We're talking about pet names in this half hour. And Sizzlin' Steve, yes, my apologies. You are the one who warned, of course, that we shouldn't give away too much information because oftentimes people use their pet names as their passwords. We're going to talk about that issue uh, coming up in a future show as well. Why aren't we better with our passwords? Anyway, um, we had some great pet names that you've sent in. I've mentioned a few of them. Brian here, I have an orange tabby cat. I named Mr. Puffy Jacket Man. Puffy for short, named after the opening scene from the movie Mr. Deeds, Janet in St. Albert. Uh, Janet says, um, when I was a kid, 
The family dog was named Loopy because we got him in Riviere Zulu in Quebec, and it suited him, suited his personality. Yeah, of course, that's always so. That's where we arrived with all this because there is a list of the top ten most popular dog names and cat names for 2023 um what's in a name well a whole lot when it comes to a pet right did you go for something simple or traditional quirky did the kids pick it out is it trendy did you take one look at your pet and decide they suited a certain name or maybe as often as the case you adopted a rescue and you keep the name that they come with because it gives them a certain sense of stability and so on um, especially for dogs right i gather because they like they are used to hearing a certain word that sounds like their name, and you know that's a familiarity for them. If you have a dog named Charlie or Luna, or a cat named Leo or Luna, then you really are by no means alone. Those names are at the top of the list of the most popular canine and feline names for 2023. That's right. Both um, female cats and female dogs, the most popular name is Luna. Why? I don't know. The list was put together by Rover.com. It's an online marketplace for pet care, and it's based on the company's database of millions of pets. They determine which names are trending in the country right now, and it kind of offers a glimpse on what's – it's probably a better gauge of the national mood than almost anything else, isn't it? There are lots of celebrity trends from Taylor Swift to Barbie, sports legends, old and new. Apparently, lots of people have pets named Gretzky. I've never met one, but apparently they're out there. Food names, uh, cupcake. Kale, there are a bunch of them. Drink names, again, whiskey, so on and so forth. You name it. Joining me now is Dr. Rebecca Greenstein. She's veterinary medical advisor for Rover.com, who put this list, these lists together. Uh, Dr. Greenstein, thank you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is one of those things. I mean, over the years, you know, I've seen you meet all sorts of pets and sometimes you could tell that the kids have named them and sometimes are her. And sometimes you could tell it was something inspired by something else, but it matters, doesn't it? I mean, I don't imagine the pets care much, but we care about what name we give, <laughs> what name we give them. I think what this uh, Rover survey shows is that we care deeply about what we name our pets. Um, pets are a, a sort of an outcropping of our own personalities, not to mention the fact that now more than ever, we think of them as literal fur babies. So a lot of the names, while some of them are surprising, uh, a lot of them aren't that surprising because it's part of kind of our cultural zeitgeist at this point. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of consistency uh, amongst cats and dogs, too. It feel it seems like yeah. while we both want to be adventurous when naming a pet, we also aren't that adventurous, it turns out. It's, we love classics. And having, to be honest, to having just had a baby myself, the funny thing is the top 10 lists for cats and dog names look almost identical to what you would name a baby. So yes. it just goes to show there is, it's because we look at them as being so, so human, um, naming uh, a, a dog Charlie is really, it's, I think that's one of the top trending names for a baby. So it's, they're just so close to our hearts. We treat them like people. Right. Psychologically, what's going on? I mean, you must meet, obviously, you meet lots of people with pets. They must talk about the name, right? I mean, the name, the name sort of, I, I don't want to say that dogs take on the name's personality. I think we do that too, them, or, or, or cats for that matter. Uh, but, yeah. it, but it does, it does, how we view the pet, what they say to us is often uh, has some sort of hand in how we name them, I would imagine. It definitely does. A lot of names come sort of as um, as a reflection of the owner's personality. So we have uh, in my own practice 
there are some people who are just uh, hugely into Harry Potter, hugely into uh, Star Wars. Um, and we see those types of names repeated. And then every so often we have someone who, who comes with, uh, what would say, Taylor Swift's cats. I think one of them is named Meredith Grey. You right. can see that these names are a reflection of the owner's personal interests. And sometimes they, you know, they really want to put those interests first in letting the world know what inspired them. Right. I suppose if you're at the dog park and you yell out a certain name, not for a cat, obviously, but if you yell out a certain name, it's sort of, you know, it's a Mandalorian name. It says something about you, right? You're sort of expressing what you love to the world through your pet. Absolutely. And this was such a big year. 2023 was such a big year of just such you know, huge trends. The era tour with uh, Taylor Swift, a uh, huge number of sports um, trends. So when you're at the dog park calling out Gretzky, it obviously gives a little bit of a hint about your personality and your interests as well. Tell me a bit about Luna, because I was, I was uh, first of all, I should say that our um, technical producer, Talia, just got a cat. Now, this cat already had its name, but it's Luna. And Luna is not only the top name for a female dog it's also the top name for a female cat it's just an incredibly popular popular name i wondered is that new is that something that happened recently or has that been going on for a while anecdotally and that's i can tell you from our practice and our practice practice records there was a time where if you um searched a patient named coco you would pretty much crash our database now <laughs> if you if you search uh luna we have tons and tons of lunas we started hearing luna um, several years ago. And it's just, it's nice because it's a very clean name. It's a very, um, you know, it's, it's a very feminine name and it just, it's a, it has a bit very dreamy like quality to it. So I think it really has a universal appeal, but we've definitely, Luna's been kicking around, um, in our medical record system for a little while, but it's really just exploded. Yeah, I can't imagine you have patients, people come in with their pets and yell out Luna. I mean, everyone must turn around at some point. <laughs> everyone turns around. Yeah. <laughs> Cats, dogs, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Charlie, I mean, you mentioned Charlie's the number one name for a, for a male dog, which which is, which is, which is, I mean, I, we had a, and, and for cats, it's Leo, which makes a lot of sense, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah, but, but Charlie's one of those names. I mean, my dad had a dog named Charlie. I've known other people have had dogs named Charlie over the years. That one seems to be the sort of the, the classic, the classic name for a, for a dog. And it's the third most popular name for a male cat as well. I've always, uh, I've heard, having looked into so many baby names myself um, right. recently, <laughs> I, uh, it's, I heard that it goes on kind of like these 80 year trends where what was popular 80 years ago kind of makes a resurgence. And Charlie has just been a perennial favorite, um, but it's it's so similar to what's going on in baby naming trends. It's just, it's a classic name. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's appropriate for uh, girls and boys. Um, and I have a lot of Charlies in my practice and it's just, it's, it has, again, universal appeal. Do you, do you ever have, I mean, one of the things that I've, that I, that I was often asked of is that sometimes when people adopt pets, they are, they come with a name, right? Um, yeah. And maybe it's not the name you would have chosen, but it's a name that has been chosen. And oftentimes people are reluctant to change that name, right? It, it's it's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, absolutely. Well, they, even though animals don't have any meaning ascribed to it, they still know what the sound is. So they don't know what their names are per se, but they know that you're consistently calling them by a certain sound and that sound is their name. So I think it, it, there is something to be said for a rescue um, who's changing circumstances, changing households to keep that consistency. But a lot of people, if the name is a little bit pedestrian or a little bit silly, they'll kind of tell me sheepishly like, oh, the name was already chosen. It's not my name. Right. My dad, uh, they, ado they adopted a rescue uh, who, who only spoke French. 
<laughs> so, so, and, and so they, they ended up. They didn't want to keep the name. I think the name was Achille. So they they were Achilles, right? So they said so they called they called him Archie, which he responds to. He responds to Archie, which is great. Yeah. That's yeah. a classic Canadian story. It is a classic <laughs> Canadian story. Yeah, he still my dad still has to say "sit" in French for him to obey. But <laughs> it's amazing. It is amazing for cats. Is it the same for cats? I've always felt. I mean, at, for a while, I had a dog named Murphy and a cat named Charlie. I didn't think the cat much cared about what we what it was called. Uh, no, we uh, cats are their own, as we always say in veterinary medicine beyond cats make their own rules. Yeah. Um, it's the, the funny thing is, I think more pet owners do reference cats. They make some sort of reference to the cat being a cat, for example, Leo, Simba, like a lion reference, that sort of thing. Um, we see that a lot more with cat names than we do um, than we do with dog names. Um, calling a cat and getting them to understand it's their name or getting them to do what you want is the impossible dream. Yeah, I always figured cats would tell you what their name is if they could. <laughs> they would Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, they would. Dr. Rebecca Greenstein is with us this half hour. She's a veterinary medical advisor for Rover.com. We're talking about Rover's 11th annual list of the most popular pet names right across North America, by the way. But there is a Canadian list uh, for dogs. Charlie is number one uh, for male dogs. Females is Luda. I hear a dog. There you go. Right oh, on cue. I'm... Right on cue. <laughs> <laughs> right on cue. What, what's that's, a... that's Clifford. Clifford. <laughs> see, there's a cool name. See, see, now he's hearing his name. He's going to keep barking. Yeah, exactly. He's he wants in on all of this. So we actually, when we went to go name it, we had a tough time. We we went through this fairly recently, and it's really it's it's tough to name a dog. It is. It did. Did he? Did you sort of? How did you fall upon Clifford? Did you just say? I mean, I remember Clifford the big red dog. Is that right? <laughs> That's exactly it. And I apologize that Clifford is uh, letting you know that he <laughs> he wants in on this interview. Uh, yes. So that's exactly so he it's based on Clifford the Big Red Dog, somewhere between uh, the Scholastic Books and Cliff Clavin from Cheers. We just thought it was kind of a funny old man name. And he's kind of shaggy. So, yeah, that's where Cliff came from. Oh, I wonder if you if there was any way you could explain to him who Cliff Clavin was. <laughs> Dr. Rebecca Greenstein is with us this half hour, veterinary medical advisor for Rover.com. We're talking about the most popular pet names of 2023. Clifford, uh, her dog has joined in on our conversation, <laughs> which is great. Um, Clifford isn't in the top 10, but uh, but it should be. It's always uh, always been a good one. Uh, Dr. Uh, Greenstein, one of the things I found interesting is just you see, you can almost tell when someone got a pet by some of the sort of more trend names that they have, things that were really popular 10 years ago. You know, if you, you know, if you bump into a, to a, to a Jonas or a Justin dog, you can kind of tell, oh yeah, that I can see <laughs> when that came in. I guess Barbie made a big splash this year. You were already mentioning Taylor Swift, who's a notorious cat lover as well. So that plays in in a bunch of different ways. Yes. So this, there's certain things that really, in terms of pop culture, sort of define 2023. And this list is you know, subjective, obviously, but uh, Taylor Swift, the Barbie, uh, you know, Barbie core trend is huge. And these types of names have just made a, a really climb the charts. The number of um, times their entrance about um, T-Swift or Swifty is, is something that we never would have thought about hearing a pet name um, several years ago. And now Swifty is it's on the books. How much do the pets take on the personality of the name? Because clearly a dog named Noodles, no matter how big it is, is going to be, people are going to smile when they hear its name, right? Uh, or when you call, you call your dog Rocky, you're saying something quite different, right? 
Absolutely. Or when we had uh, a, a big tough Dover named Rambo in the practice. And I have to say, wore a spike collar. The owner was, you know, a little bit stern. These things do kind of come. It's I don't know if it's the animal taking on the personality, but the sort of personality the owner has that gives rise to the name that often, you know, noodles tends to be owned by a more whimsical owner, whereas Rambo is owned by someone who's a little bit tougher, that there are exceptions, obviously, to the rule, but there is a psychology in what goes into the name. It's interesting that you struggled to find a name for, for it, considering how many names of, of pets you're confronted with uh, week in, week <laughs> out. I should have asked you what, what your what your child's name is, because that was that was even more. Yes. Oh, my God. It's, it's funny that you asked. So of, even though we, you know, we, we there were so many different names that we went through for the dog, for the baby. But what struck me is that the choice is similar in that you're naming someone that whatever their name is there are certain connotations that are attached to it so our baby boy we named henry uh, oh. because it was a really classic name but at the same time we call him hank which is the name of some of my favorite uh dog patients so everyone we make a joke <laughs> that i named the baby after my after dogs that i really liked it's I, well you'll have to tell hank that story at some, at some point <laughs> yeah yeah I, I guess as a last just a, for people out there getting pets any words of advice on naming on on the best way to name to name either a cat or a dog i would say go with your heart it's um it, it's a very it, it's a very unique process and you want to sort of say is this something where you want a name where no one else has or don't be afraid if a name is very mainstream like luna and you really like it it's okay it's not like they're in a classroom and someone calls luna and you know 10 kids turn around if you really like a popular name there is nothing wrong with that you're in excellent company right and if you do adopt a pet with it that already has a name uh, with cats you, you probably can change it if you want because the cat's not going to be too fussed i suppose uh and don't with tell dog, them i said that don't tell them i said <laughs> <laughs> You're going to hear from them next week at, at your practice. Um, and But for dogs, you need something that sounds similar, right? Because they're, they're kind of used to being addressed in it with a certain tone. I would say so. It's, you know, especially if they're moving houses and everything is new circumstances. The yeah. one sort of familiar thing is at least it has to sound similar or just have a, just a, a, a similar tone to it. Well, um, Dr. Greenstein, to Clifford, uh, well, to Hank first and Clifford as well. <laughs> Th thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. This isn't about pets. It's about Canada's national animal. Now, here at home, where the beavers are a national animal, the birth of a kit, a baby beaver, is, is really not noteworthy at all, right? Far from it. Uh, but travel across the Atlantic to London, and the arrival of a kit is a very big deal indeed. That's because the one just born recently is believed to be the first one born in London in centuries. Back then, of course, Europe's largest rodent was hunted to extinction uh, in the UK for its fur and other uses, with only about a 1,000 left on the European mainland. But of late, they have been successfully reintroduced in many places, including in Scotland and in England, and now in London itself. There are still only about 500 of them across England, compared to millions here. They're doing this cautiously, but it's a concerted effort because of the benefits they offer in flood management, water quality, and biodiversity generally. Um, this story in London began with a bonded pair they brought from Scotland, and they've already started a family, so to speak. And it's been huge news locally, nationally, even internationally. Here is a BBC London story, just a bit of one from last month. 
Spotted on night vision camera, a new arrival. London's first baby beaver to be born in the capital for hundreds of years. A male and female were reintroduced to the Forty Hall estate in the London borough of Enfield in spring last year, bringing beavers to the capital for the first time in 400 years with the hope that they might start their own family. And they did. And they did. Uh, now, of course, as Canadians, I felt it almost a national duty to check in on this story, to find out what was going on, because, of course, the beaver is a very important symbol here. So if other countries are going to start having more of them, we should check in on them. So Meg Wilson, Animal Collections Manager at Capel Manor College, uh, who are look, overseeing that uh, London beaver reintroduction, uh, joins me now. Meg, thank you so much. No worries. <laughs> well, you, you must, I, I guess it's no surprise that this story has gotten a fair amount of coverage in Canada. So I, g- <laughs> I gather you've gotten a few calls from over here. I've got a couple. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, yeah. No, I do. I have had a couple of calls from men um, from Canada, which is quite nice, actually. I didn't quite expect it to go that international. Uh, to be honest, I didn't expect it to go national, let alone international. So uh, this is really exciting to it, share. It is. It's a great, I mean, it's, it, it's that headline that says, you know, first beaver born in London in 400 years. It's quite eye-catching, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, we're really lucky, actually. It's, um, it, uh, yeah it's been it's a it's been a little bit of a project and so um yeah we're really happy that the new beavers have um settled well they're not new anymore really but the beavers are settled in they obviously are getting on really well and and therefore we have baby beaver and actually just maybe half an hour ago so it's yeah it's five five thirty um, here so half an hour ago my um my colleague messaged me saying oh my god i've just seen all three of them together swimming along and oh, she wow. hasn't them all together swimming before she's obviously down there changing the cameras batteries and stuff so uh yeah so that's really cool <laughs> so they're just so mum and mum and kids are doing a-okay yeah, yeah absolutely they're doing really well <laughs> tell me about this whole idea of rewilding because when i was living in the uk i remember it being it was happening if i remember correctly it was happening in scotland at the time but this has sort of been an ongoing project throughout the united kingdom to try and bring back uh what had been basically hunted, hunted to extinction centuries ago yeah. So, um, so as I said, we we um, in the UK we're sort of we're we're quite hot on rewilding at the moment. Um, and rewilding itself, actually, the name has kind of uh, changed uh, quite a lot of what actually what rewilding actually is. Um, it's easier to do in Scotland, but uh, we are we are a very small country. Uh, um a really large population um so the councils are doing their best not to expand into the countryside um and we've got lots of legislation around our farming practices and all this sort of thing um but reintroducing the beavers uh is is well we're, we're in london so we're in we are in a city um mm-hmm. it is north london so there's more green space out there um but the idea of like rewilding and using animals to shape nature um is something that everyone's sort of very keen on. So we, we're not going in, um, you know, changing landscapes with manpower and machine. Um, and it's all going, um, you know, and that it's just it's just better for biodiversity, um, land regeneration. We find it we find it a lot easier. And I think even farmers they're really looking at conservation grazing at the, um, uh, with their with their livestock instead of intensely farming. Um, and it, it's sort of going on. It is going on everywhere. Um, there's benefits to rewild it. Or there's benefits to introducing, you know, 
nature i guess back into animals back into nature where they used to be um that's not to say that everyone is is for this um but um you know farms in particular uh if you if we go and release a load of beavers um and they start flooding um, fields and pastures and um that's going to you know what what farmers have been filled like farming for generations that is obviously going to cause an issue but with this it's we're very we very carefully manage this kind of project. Um, the Beaver Trust um, that we've got in the UK, um, they're they're amazing. They're doing lots of, in several different places, um, and uh, yeah. So our our beavers are pretty much they are in an enclosed area, um, and we are putting in a bid right now to actually expand the area. Um, and we have to have licenses from Natural England that allow us to uh, do this with native, even, you know, they are native species. So we have to have licenses to do everything. So it's very, it's very closely governed to make sure. Very we controlled. Do- yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not just sort of breeding them and letting them loose, right, I guess. Not- because Canadians know well what kind of, well, first of all, how industrious and what kind of, uh, how much beavers can, uh, let me put it this way, how much beavers can change the landscape quickly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed on these two little individuals. They've come in and uh, they, they've nearly been here about a year um, now. But like, even straight, straight away, you, t- you knew that they were sort of, you know, settling in and they were just working straight away on the enclosure, um, felling trees where they ate the sound of running water. So they blocked up this kind of like this suction pipe thing that went down and then sort of puts the water out elsewhere which had already originally been put in um for the for a bit of flood management down there um but yeah they dammed that immediately um and yeah they got to work so quickly so it is it's very controlled it's all controlled it has to be um because you know because of where we are Um, but hopefully like we hopefully like in the future if this does you know if this does work and we're not the only people doing um beaver releasing um projects across the country um if it if it does prove to be really beneficial then hopefully we can lift these uh, the uh fencing and they will be wild again tell me a bit about what the purpose is then because you're not just reintroducing them for fun right this is not just to bring them back to watch them you're actually there is actually a purpose here yeah yeah so the purpose is we we've got with um we, we've sort of hooked up with enfield council which is the council that our college and our, our farm is in and we're um uh we are then uh, sort of we're stopping the fl- hopefully we're going to stop the flooding downstream so that we're using it as a flood defense we are also using it as sort of a, a way of biodiversity we don't mm-hmm. want to take in machinery and smash up all this woodland um and creating a wetland is so much better like it holds a lot of carbon so we're using it um like it, as just a land management tool as well uh but it's predominantly it's, it's the flooding um that hopefully will be preventing like i said going down into the next town along right so fl- little flood defense is bringing in now tell me you, these ones came from scotland is that right the, the the original pair or came from scotland and the idea is 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 for them to breed and, have, and then you'll have sort of indigenous enfield beavers <laughs> London beaters. London yeah. beaters. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. So these these two came. Yeah, they would have been selected by they. So again, we're working with the Beaver Trust on this. So mm-hmm. they're selected. Um, they are selected animals. They were they were a bonded pair before they came, which I think is is so it makes life so much easier. Um, 
so uh yeah a bonded pair coming down uh to us and then and then yeah and then hopefully the plan is we do have a license to hold eight beavers um and as i said we are currently writing a bid um to the government to hopefully get more funding to expand the area um which uh sort of incorporate more of our leased land that we we have of the council anyway so um because this is all happening on our on our farm um sort of at the bottom of the farm which we don't use because it floods so much um so it's uh yeah so hopefully we'll have more babies um and the with obviously they're all in one place and they can't just move off naturally so we have this relationship with the beaver trust um who can you know we can trap and um and sex them and, and make sure we have like correct ratios and stuff and the babies don't need to leave until they're two three years old anyway um so we've got a bit of time right um and uh, and these these were a really young pair coming in so we i wasn't expecting um beavers this year anyway to be perfectly honest i didn't think that they would have settled in quick enough and uh be like comfortable in their environment they're but... making, this, uh, making themselves right at home already that's that's good yeah. to see that's good to see <laughs> Are, are they yeah. a popular attraction? I mean, people haven't seen the likes of them uh, in generations. Are people coming out? Can people come out and see them? They can. So yeah. it is, um, it's actually a 40 Hall estate is a really popular estate for dog walkers. Um, as you can imagine in London, any sort of big green space is just everyone sort of draws to. Um, and you can sort of walk your dog around that area and everything. And, and, the, and the perimeter fence line of the beavers, you can walk around. Now, they are elusive animals. We've had one photographer, actually, um, who's a local, uh, be so lucky to spot them out. And he's taken some gorgeous pictures of them. Um, so you you know you can be walking right next to the beaver enclosure and not really know um but that's another thing um that sort of is on our list of to do um we're going to be sort of uh promote not promoting them but um making Raising sure awareness have, yeah yeah and make sure we have that educational signage um up um and and yeah and uh, we're a college so we're a land-based college we teach animal management um, um up to degree level um we do horticulture floristry um we do we teach arb you know arb culture we do we do all this sort of land-based stuff so uh at countryside management and these animals and doing an active conservation project all feeds into our feeds into all of these lessons so we can do some really great teaching um and the students are as you can imagine like fully engaged because they're not just sitting in four walls and looking at a screen they're actually getting out and doing actual conservation work so we've got you know we've got the public support there has been really great um and and then yeah and then it benefits our students massively right have you given have you named them yet i, I was looking around i couldn't find names that's a very canadian thing to do but <laughs> have, you named, have you named them I so I run the project alongside um, the farm manager and the farm manager is really superstitious. He's like, you should never name, um, name animals. Uh, uh-huh. Makes sense. That. But uh, the baby, we um, we have, we do name him or her. We don't know. Baby Bevan. Um, I don't know why. Uh, we have our, our um, previous uh, animal management director um, her surname was Bevan. So that kind of fits in really nicely. Um, as Bevan, to- Bevan the beaver. It has a nice yeah. ring to it. It has a nice ring to it. So, so the plan now is, is to, to stay with the, with these, these ones for the time being, and then you've applied to expand. So we may in fact see this could be just the beginning then, but of a carefully managed program, as you pointed out. 
yeah yeah so we we would expect them to breed again there's no there's we we camera trap them every night so we we have eyes on the beavers all the time we know exactly what trees they're working on because uh, we have to be a little bit careful i do i i if I'm perfectly honest, I, wasn't, I didn't realize they'd fell quite such massive. Yes, they're, they're industrious. They're incredibly industrious. Yes, and they're. I mean, the hardworking beaver is not is not a cliche. I mean, they do. Yeah. They will damn anything and fast. They're relentless. Yeah, I like they're they're incredible. So I was like, oh, maybe you guys should have researched this a bit more. But anyway, it's all good. <laughs> Actually, what they're doing is absolutely fine. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't have another um, kit um you know as soon as as soon as they're ready to so um but like i said we wouldn't need to get rid of our first little baby anyway until it sort of reached sexual sexual maturity so i guess there is a level you know there's obviously that level of um management i manage the zoos um for the college um so we're we're massively hands-on like the management side of all the animals there so um i guess it's not dissimilar to that but the the time will come and we'll discuss it with the beaver trust and the the best way to go but yeah we're hoping you know we could hold up to eight beavers especially if we get um funding and approval for the new um the it's not a new enclosure it's just goes downstream so it's just it's just enlarging it um enlarging the space which is sort of just a bit of not really being used anyway um so so yeah that's it's just really exciting well uh, congratulations Meg thank you so much (laughs) thank you
Thank <laughs> you.